Production funding for Ruckus has been provided by gifts from Dave and Jamie Cummings, the Fred and Lou Hartwig family, Peter and Barbara Gattermeyer, the Courtney S. Turner Charitable Trust, John H. Mize, and Bank of America N.A. co-trustees. And by viewers like you. Thank you. And welcome to Ruckus, our weekly food for thought fight from the left, the right, and the center over the news of the day and the trends of the times. I'm Mike Shannon. The Ruckettes join me shortly in our topics this week. The mayor outlines the state of the city. The Kansas legislature encounters the state of debate. And we debate deleting tweeting plus roast and toast. Well, we're going to begin with our newsmaker segment and talk about what's happening at 18th and Vine and the American Jazz Museum. Kansas City is considered a legendary center of jazz, and the museum is designed to preserve and promote that heritage. While it seems like the perfect pairing, jazz in Kansas City, the museum has faced challenges, mostly financial, since its opening in 1997. A new executive director has just come on board. Rashida Phillips is a native of St. Louis, an experienced arts administrator, and best of all, a jazz singer. Rashida Phillips, welcome to Ruckus. Thanks very much for coming in. Thank you for having me. So you've been on the job only a short time, maybe a month, month and a half. But yeah, what are some of your months. early impressions of the Jazz Museum, 18th and Vine, and Kansas City? I'm thrilled to be here. You know, I moved here after 16 years in Chicago, and I moved here because this is really my passion. As you mentioned, I'm a jazz vocalist, so that's sort of in my spirit, as well as a master's in jazz history and research. So some of the preservation work I worked on when I was doing my studies. But Kansas City is really a cradle. You know, being from St. Louis, Missouri, there's the show me state that's happening. So I want to see Kansas City show a little bit more. And I know with the bones of that museum, as well as our neighbors with the, the Baseball League Museum, it's truly a treasure and an asset. So I'm thrilled to be here and to lead it into the next What phase. else is going on at 18th and Vine? What else is there? Well, certainly there is the centennial celebration for the Baseball League this year, uh, as well as the Charlie Parker Centennial. So that's exciting. We've got some neighboring restaurants, Soray. We've got... Uh, on the Vine, there's also a, a Cajun restaurant there. There's some barbershops, other things that are happening. So, in the so there's more than just the two museums, That's which correct. seemed to be the case, yes. uh, you know, several years yeah. ago. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it is no secret that the museum and the 18th and Vine area have both experienced a lot of problems over the years. But I gather that the guy who was on the job before you, an interim director, has kind of straightened out some of the problems. Certainly he has. He stabilized it. What is it, Cairo or Ralph? Ralph Cairo, yeah. yeah, who did an excellent job as, uh, as an interim there and sort of stabilize the staff a bit and continue to sort of get the finances lined up and in order. But we're in good shape and I'm excited to lead it forward. Are you in charge of the Blue Room and the Gym Theater as well? That's correct, yeah. What's going on at the Blue Room? That's a jazz club or a replica of a jazz club in the 1930s. That's right. So multiple multiple nights a week we have talent that's coming through the Blue Room and we're looking to boost that talent a little bit more, get uh, more people through the doorway to enjoy the living art of jazz, which is exciting there. And the Gym Theater is sort of a host of multiple events for community partners. We're going to have a Miles Davis movie there this Sunday, so hopefully people will come and join us there. And there's just kind of a lot happening with the hybrid institution. How do you find out what's going on at the Blue Room and the Gym Theater and at the Jazz Museum? Do you have a website we people do. can go to? That's right. That's Right. So if you go to our website at uh, Kansas City, the American Jazz Museum .org, you can certainly find out all the information there. And it's the only jazz museum in the country, right? Or it's maybe not the, the world. only one. It's not the only one not in the, the country. One? There are a few more. There's the Louis Armstrong House Museum that's in New York. There's the National Jazz Museum in Harlem, which is interesting. And there's a jazz museum in New Orleans as well. 
Uh, the Kansas City City Government, now working on next year's budget, has essentially subsidized the Jazz Museum for years. Last year, I think the city's contribution was a million dollars or more. Uh, do you have any idea how much support you're getting this coming year, this you know, we'll see. Year. Obviously, the budget was just released. There's yeah. community meetings happening, so we'll see where we land. But we are a community asset. You know, I feel thrilled, again, to have the community rally behind us and continue to move this organization into a great place. It, the yeah. first director of the Jazz Museum I recall interviewing, and she said it will be self-supporting in 10 years. It's been 20 plus mm -hmm. and it's not. Do you foresee a time when it could be self-supporting? I absolutely foresee a time. And it's unusual in a way that it's a hybrid institution. Like you mentioned, there are other components. It's not just a museum. There's a jazz club component as well as a theater. So that means different things to different people. But I'm excited because it allows the entry point from multiple uh, places for folks to come and enjoy what we have to offer. You mentioned, I mentioned also, you're a jazz vocalist, jazz singer, That's and I'm right. sure a very good one, although I've not had the opportunity to hear you. Will I be having that opportunity somewhere soon? We'll see, hopefully soon. Certainly I'm rolling up my sleeves and getting this organization in order. So that's why I've moved to town. Uh, Chicago was, you know, not a place to leave that I didn't have opportunities to sing on many stages. But so I wouldn't say that that's secondary, but I'm interested in getting this museum to the place it needs to be. And your favorite jazz singer was Sarah Vaughn, is that right? Sarah Vaughn is the reason I started, but there are many. Abby Lincoln, Carmen McRae, uh, Ella Fitzgerald, the list goes on and on. We can learn more about all of them at the Jazz Museum, right? That's you right. Stop by. It's That's a pleasure right. to meet you. Welcome pleasure to, to Kansas City. Uh, much success. Hope it turns out well. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. That is Rashida Phillips. She is executive director of the American Jazz Museum at 18th and Vine. Now let's meet our panel and start a ruckus. Patrick Tuohy is Senior Fellow of Municipal Policy at the Show Me Institute, a free market think tank. Sean Saving is a labor activist, part of the Heartland Labor Forum at KKFI Radio. Lisa Johnston is a columnist and consultant. And prominent, influential attorney Steve Marakian is with the firm of Worsh, Hobbs & Marakian. And Steve insists on writing his own introduction. <laughs> Welcome to all of you. It's nice to have you with us. We've had a week or so to uh, absorb Mayor Quentin Lucas's first state of the city speech and budget plan for Kansas City. Calls for more money for the police and fire departments, free bus travel, more money for affordable housing, and the creation of a pothole czar. The mayor may get what he wants, but first the public gets to weigh in on the $1.7 billion package. There will be public hearings. There are already complaints from aggrieved groups and interests facing reduced funding. And the 12 other members of the city council will make their views known before the budget is adopted in mid-March and takes effect on May the 1st. Now, as someone who thinks a lot about municipal policy, that's your job. What do you think of the Lucas budget plan? We'll start with Patrick, then we'll hear from Sean. So I liked the outlines I saw in the budget, but what remains to be seen is how much of this will be fought for, how much of this will be defended. We have politicians in Kansas City who, who say one thing and then do the exact opposite. So again, this is promising, but I know from experience to wait until uh, the debate is uh, in full, uh, full process. All right, Sean, yeah. what's your general well, I mean, impression? I think that people got to realize that, that although the budget is very large, there's only about $70, $80 million that actually is discretionary. So I like what I've seen, that it, it seems to be fitting some of the things that he's promised he wanted to do. But what I don't see still is an acknowledgement that the way we give tax incentives away to corporations is directly tied to our infrastructure. 
roads specifically. If you're bringing more business in and they are not paying for the, the increased uh, traffic and, and wear and tear on the infrastructure, you're not fully co you're covering your costs. And this is a direct, there's a direct relationship between the two. And I don't see anywhere yet where anybody at City Hall actually understands that relationship between our infrastructure costs and giving tax dollars away for new development. Patrick, I wonder what you think about a pothole czar. Uh, I, I would guess you're one of those people who says, well, we have a public works department. We hardly need a czar, somebody in particular, to fix potholes. Well, there you go. You've, you've spoken for me. <laughs> I don't know. Again, the, the city hall too often when it comes with crime, now with potholes, it thinks if we just appoint another person, the problem gets fixed, and that's exactly opposite. We just, we've got the people to do it, give them the money, and let them go do it. Lisa, I mentioned there were some organizations that had cuts in the budget, at least mm. proposed cuts. One of them is Children's Mercy Hospital. And one of the groups that gets more money is the Lowe's Hotel. Now, how do we figure that out? How is that fair, or is it? It certainly uh, smacks of questionable priorities, to say the least. And I was concerned about the hotel from the very beginning. And it's beginning to look like at this point that that is going to turn into a money pit. Is it ever, ever going to be built? I guess it's supposed to open soon. Theoretically. But we've been talking about this hotel on Ruckus since at least 2015, if not yes. before. For years. And I understand the arguments that proponents make. I'm just still not convinced. The proof will be in the pudding when it's finally finished and we see how things perform. But it is sad to see Children's Mercy get undercut in that way. Steve, I know you're a man who always likes to achieve consensus about almost everything. Uh, so Never well, controversial. I bring people together, yes. Let me ask you this question. Does any city budget or any budget anywhere ever really please all the, effect, the people affected by it? No, of course not. But I was, I was a little surprised because when I saw the pothole czar, I was first thinking it was going to be a pot czar because of the, <laughs> of the pardon for it and so forth. Um, but I was disappointed in the budget and, and, and for a couple of reasons. One is um, I think this push for free bus travel, in my opinion, is, is a waste of time. I don't, I don't think we need it, but we can debate that. Uh, but secondly, more money for the police and fire, it always sounds great. That's not the issue, though. The issue is how do you allocate it and how do you use it? The mayor talked about at length in his campaign, reducing the homicide rate in Kansas City. So it's not a matter of throwing more money at the police and fire department. It's more a question of how do you use the police, where are they used, and what is the priority? I agree with what everybody else has said in terms of infrastructure. That's extremely important. This Lowe's hotel thing, giving more money to Lowe's and taking money from Children's Mercy Hospital, I think is absurd. So I was very disappointed because I thought initially that he is going to have a, a mayor of vision and really go forward. This budget was very disappointing to me. Let me ask you, uh, Patrick, do you think uh, the budget recommendations are consistent with what Lucas talked about in his campaign? Again, they're just recommendations. So right. I, I think they are. I think we're focusing on more important things. But, you know, we know from watching uh, Mayor Lucas that uh, the, the, the first words don't necessarily match up with the action that comes later. And, Sean, just to stress something you said earlier, just like the federal government, the size of the budget doesn't mean you have all that money to spend. There's right. only a small amount that, that the council or the, the Congress has available to, to uh, remove and move here and there. Right. Right. And I think it's interesting. One thing I, that I find really particularly funny is that 
you are apparently there was there was there's been a decrease in hotel revenues, which is why there's part of the shortfall for this Lowe's thing. And one of the cuts is to the Visit KC tourism fund, which is supposed to be advertising to bring people in to fill up the hotels. And I thought that was an odd well part of transition it, and trade off. Part of that is that previous uh, councils have agreed right. to these awful contracts, made awful yep. promises. That aren't true with Visit KC right. and Children's Mercy. That, but that happens in governments all the time, doesn't yeah. it? Uh, an administration makes a promise to get something done now without concern about how it affects future administrations. We see that locally and sometimes nationally, for that matter. When the Kansas legislature opened for business last month, it appeared there would be unprecedented cooperation between Democrats and Republicans. Democratic Governor Laura Kelly and the Republican Senate Majority Leader Jim Denning announced agreement on Medicaid expansion. Then GOP efforts began to put a constitutional amendment placing abortion under legislative control on the August ballot. It passed in the Senate and fell four votes short of the requisite two-thirds approval required in the House. Now both the Medicaid expansion plan and the abortion measure seem in limbo. How in the world, Lisa, did this happen? <laughs> well, Wagle started out by putting this amendment forward. Now she's the president of the Senate. Correct. Uh, she's correct. a Republican, too. Correct. And was arguing for it to be on the August primary ballot. But there's a problem with that. That is a very biased way to do it because many independents, most independents probably, don't usually vote in primary elections. And Democrats don't have any high-profile, hotly contested primary races. So are you and saying so, Republicans won on the ballot? Republicans won on the ballot when Republicans might vote and pass correct, it? Correct, oh. correct. The only thing that I can think that would be more biased is if I had proposed we put it on during during the May 2nd Democratic presidential right. primary. But the, the problem then was that even some Republicans could see that that was inappropriate and skewed and biased, and so they didn't even get all their members in the House to vote for it, which is why it failed. So then Wiggle decides to throw a political tantrum and essentially penalize 150,000 Kansans who are in need of basic care and really need this Medicare, or excuse me, Medicaid expansion by saying she's going to stonewall any progress with the Kelly Denning plan that looked like it might have a good chance to pass. Uh, why would Republicans refuse to support putting this on the August ballot, Steve? Well, I think it was, it was, there was a lot of horse trading going on. and, and a lot Let of me jump in and say this means the effort to put abortion back under control of the legislature since the state Supreme Court discovered the 1861 document did include the right to abortion. Well, it's, it's more, in my view, a question of timing. Uh, I think that, that there are a number of Republicans out there, including the ones who are running for the Senate, and Ms. Wagel being one of them, who really want this to be something that's going to be on the ballot and an issue they can campaign on uh, as we get closer to the November election. Because I think they believe that there's going to be a huge turnout uh, they believe in support of President Trump and that this will bring a lot of people out and they can get this thing voted on and Republicans would would support it. But I think they were hoping this trade-off was going to be and that this was the game that they were playing in the Senate was or with the Senate and they thought the House was going to be to trade off that we'll support this Medicaid deal if you support yeah. putting this abortion thing on the ballot as well. They didn't get the votes they needed, and so the Medicaid thing. Then, as Lisa said, Wagle said, "Okay, then screw you. Okay, we're not we're 
not, we're not doing the Medicaid thing either. So all of it gets delayed, and, and ultimately, I believe that this issue, I believe, will be eventually put to the voters of Kansas, which I said when the Supreme Court stepped in, and I thought wrongly, yeah. I thought the, the Kansans are going to move to put this to amend the Constitution. So is this Medicaid expansion legislation critical for Governor Kelly? I think it's, I mean, critical. I mean, has she had I, legislative successes thus far? Well, I mean, how can you have legislative successes when your party has less than, has super minorities in both houses? I mean, you're going to get what you can get done. I think it's critical. I think it's, it's, she wants to have it done. I think a lot of Republicans, I think it's critical for a lot of Republicans. Because I can tell you that I can think a lot of, there are a lot of moderate Republicans that might find themselves in, a, in, a, in trouble getting reelected if they can't get this through. It's not just Kelly. Um, I think this is an interesting, you know, the Senate started talking about they need, what, one or two votes to go around the committee and they can actually bring that bill to the floor. And the House has already passed a bill last year. So there are ways that they're, they're working right now to actually do an end run around and this. Denning, Patrick, Denning has conceded for years that this needed to be done back during Governor Collier's administration. Yeah. He came very close to getting something passed. Patrick, I want to pick up on something that Sean just mentioned. Uh, you know, we often hear that divided government is the answer. Often hear people say uh, Democratic controlled Congress and a Republican executive, that's the way to do things. Now, in Kansas, we have a Republican House and Senate and a Democratic governor. And are we getting things done? Is divided government working? Is it best? <laughs> so I am a big fan of gridlock. I think uh, the system in the United States was designed to strip leaders of power. Remember, these guys had just overthrown a king. They wanted slow, plotting uh, checks and balances. I think this is, uh, what did uh, Lincoln so say, Can government is best which governs least. Kansas is being governed the way Kansas should be governed. It's, look, these are important issues, and they need to be hashed out, and it may get ugly, but it's worth it. Got, got to move on. At the beginning of Ruckus each week, I always say it's about the news of the day and the trends, trends of, of the, the times. times. Very good. Surely tweeting is just that, a trend of the times. And no one does it better or worse, depending on your perspective, than President <laughs> Trump. The president says it keeps him in touch with his supporters and allows him to bypass his critics in the mainstream media. While there are those who think Trump's tweeting demeans the office, the nation's attorney general says the president's tweeting about DOJ personnel and decisions is making it impossible for him to do his job. Now, as someone who is sympathetic to a fellow attorney, Bill Barr, and also supportive of the tweeter-in-chief, <laughs> whose side are you on in this matter, Steve Marekian? Well, because I'm a, because I'm a, a, a consensus builder, I'm on both sides. Uh, I like Bill Barr. I think he is a very effective attorney general, and I would not want to see him leave his office. But I am a little, little bit distressed by his sort of whining attitude of, I can't do my job because the president speaks his mind. Bill Barr is able to do his job perfectly well despite the president's tweets. The president's tweets, sometimes I say, you know, you're doing yourself a disservice because he, he raises issues that he shouldn't raise. But by the same token, the president, quite frankly, knows full well exactly what he's doing with his tweets. His supporters, this is the way he gets things out to his base. He could care less what the Democrats, they hate him anyway. The independents really don't care. They don't like some things he does. They're looking more at policy, but his supporters love it. This is the way he gets around what he considers to be, and what I believe to be, an extremely biased media, which will not ever present a fair picture of what's really going on. So he uses the tweets as the president to suggest that he's the only president who has ever publicly made statements about cases that are pending and so forth. Complete nonsense. No. And Bill Barr needs to be quiet and do his job quick, independently. Quick. 
doesn't a president have the right to check in with the attorney general and say, why are you doing this, or I think you should be doing this? Well, absolutely. And I mean, Barr, he is and, the and, chief and, executive and, and, officer. And Barr, and Barr knows that. Barr's acknowledged that. What Barr is saying is basically, you know, you're undercutting me publicly. Yeah. Talk to me privately. We all know that the president, every president, I mean, Holder called himself publicly Obama's wingman. Yeah. That's okay. You're the attorney general. You work for the president. They should work together. And the president can tell him, here's what I like. What Barr shouldn't be whining about it, though, because the president's tweets don't interfere with his job at all. Lisa, is Trump the only political figure who tweets? Certainly not. And Don't I think, they all? I think most politicians try to have some kind of presence on Twitter, although some certainly don't do it as much uh, as the president does. But he likes to control the narrative. And the other thing that the tweets do for him is it gets him in the news practically daily. And he doesn't mind if uh, the cable news networks are talking about him negatively as long as they're talking about him. And so he's very, yeah. very successful in getting them to do just that. Uh, Patrick, does the president gain support by his tweets or lose support? I have no idea. And, and you talk about a trend. This isn't yet a trend. This is just one president. Now, if he is... Tweeting is a trend. Well, tweeting is a trend, yeah. but we haven't had a president do this before. Now, Trump will either get reelected or he won't, and I suspect pundits will say if he's reelected, tweeting was genius, and if he's not reelected, tweeting was the worst. It's a moment in time. Yes, he does it. Yes, it's frustrating. But I, frankly, and I don't think anyone else, has any idea if it's necessary for him to do it and the degree to which it helps him, if at all. Sean, should social media be regulated by the government? <laughs> mm, um, the show's almost over, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean... I hope. Uh. That's a, that's, I, I don't know. Social media needs to regulate itself. There are many of the people who have who are founders of these, of these platforms, who were very big on, in the beginning, who have come out and they're, they're issuing warnings, they've been issuing warnings for years about what they've built and how dangerous it actually is for civil society and for people's mental health even. And I think that at some point, uh, the social media companies have to start taking better responsibility for what it is they've actually done. This, these arguments were made about television, about radio right. and this about is books. An we are at a moment. magnitude different than all of And it's I, impossible and to police it all, really, and to do it 100% it. effectively. I think what needs to happen primarily is that people need to become better consumers of information and think more critically and realize that just be, because something is presented right. in your feed, right. it doesn't make but it true. Behavioral are you sure about that? <laughs> yes. Uh, I want to ask Lisa, is, is social media taking a toll on our ability to use the English language? Well, to some extent, I think that people are not as eloquent as they once OMG, were years ago. OMG, do you agree? <laughs> no, I'm sorry, go ahead, Lisa. No, no, I, I do think that there's a certain amount of uh, informality that I'm not sure is always healthy or beneficial, but the reality is the ship has sailed. This is here, it's part of the culture, and we just need to manage it as best we can and to keep people's expectations realistic about it. Kids today, am I right? You're absolutely right. All right, now it is time to go over to the soapbox and have roast and toast where the Ruckheads have 30 seconds each or however long they take, because I can't control them, to motivate, frustrate, or scintillate. And we begin with Lisa. 
last night's Democratic debate made it clear that the candidates who talk about unity and getting behind the nominee mean that only if they and not Bernie Sanders are the nominee. If Bernie goes into the convention with a plurality of delegates and a substantial, sizable lead, any creative shenanigans used to try to cheat him out of a nomination will create a huge rift in the party that in all likelihood will lead to the re-election of Donald Trump. You know what you just said sounds like what President Trump says about Democrats <laughs> keeping Bernie from getting the nomination. Patrick. Uh, my roast today is for the uh, UMKC Center for Economic Information who published a draft mini-report that is being used by KCATA to justify uh, bus-free or fare-free buses. They haven't uh, published an author for the study, and they haven't put the study on their website. And it's uh, it's easy to understand why once you read it. The study does not consider the trade-off costs of going fare-free. Uh, it misapplies the model they use to uh, to conduct the study, and it spends about a fifth of its space quoting a 20th-century French Marxist sociologist. I am not making that up. UMKC should be ashamed to have their name on the study, and KCATA and the city should conduct real economic impact studies on going fare-free. We don't know what this means. Stephen? I'm toasting Nancy the Ripper and Adam Schiff for their failed impeachment debacle that has left the left with two disastrous choices. Pin your tail on Red Bernie's donkey of Marxist socialism as he rides over the cliff, or let the tiny tyrant buy the nomination. Do you really think that the Bernie brown shirts and the woke squad of lefty loons will support a 70-year-old, 78-year-old white male racist misogynistic Republican billionaire? Heck, neither Red Bernie nor White Mike is even a Democrat. As the saying goes, if you're going to shoot at the king, you better not miss. Pelosi and Schiff were firing blanks. Sean? Senator Susan Wagle, uh, your craven attempt to curry favor with the fanatical wing of the Republican Party may get you the nomination to the U.S. Senate race, but if you kill Medicaid expansion, it may very well cost you the general election. Kansans are becoming increasingly fed up with a one-issue pro-life movement whose concern for life seems to end the very moment you actually become alive. All right, and finally, here is a toast to talk show host Mark Stein, who recently talked about President Trump's kidding assertion that Michael Bloomberg is so short he will need a box or crate to stand on for presidential debates. Stein said, maybe that could be a campaign slogan for Bloomberg. Make America crate again. <laughs> and that's Ruckus for this week. We are back next Thursday at 7. And now for the Ruckus and the crew, Mike Shannon saying thanks for watching and good night.